Hello everybody, and welcome back to the History of Fresh Produce, the podcast series that explores the fascinating and often overlooked history of fresh fruits and vegetables. Here are your hosts, Patrick Kelly and John Park. Hello, everybody. Hello, Patrick, and welcome back to the History of Fresh Produce. We are in part four of oh my our gosh. series on the Stolen Lands of Hawaii, our final conclusive pinnacle episode of this roller coaster ride. That's what we we're going to say, the pineapple episode. I, know, I, was trying, I, <laughs> I was searching for words, grasping in the air. I, I got there. I hope everybody's been enjoying this. I know we have. Looking at history of a nation and a kingdom to the lens of produce is a, I think a unique perspective. And I think we've all taken away something that we haven't had before. And so where we left off on our prior episode was with President Dole, the first president of the Republic of Hawaii, being announced in July 5th, 1894. And while that is a pivotal moment in our story, it is certainly not the end. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm sure, well, okay, so we have Hawaii being a republic now, but it's still not a territory, truly, of the United States. It hasn't been annexed. It's not achieved statehood. So what is going on? Well, there's actually a lot going on. I mean, just as you said, I mean, you know, Dole declared the president of the Republic of Hawaii like that. What are we in, like Star Wars, right? Like <laughs> the New Republic, John. Yes, the New Republic. The New Republic. But think about it. Let's look at this. So Cleveland was unwilling to overthrow the government by force and his successor. President William McKinley negotiated a treaty with the Republic of Hawaii in 1897. In 1898, the Spanish-American War broke out. And the strategic use of naval bases such as Pearl Harbor during the war convinced Congress to approve formal annexation like you were saying too, right? So if you look at some of this, you can start to see what's actually happening here too. And over the last three episodes, we've been able to see, right? There's a lot going on. Two years later, Hawaii was organized into the formal U.S. territory. Holy cow. So if you didn't know, that's right. Just around, right, 1898, 1899, 1900s. What are we going into right now? All of a sudden, 1959, how many years later entered the United States as the 50th state? Which is, we think to ourselves, that's so long ago. But John, it's really not. 59 is not long ago. Think about it. Yeah, my parents... Hawaii was just an annexed territory when they were born. Wasn't same, safe. same for yeah. my my grandmother. My dad was born in 1956, yeah. and my mom in 1959, but my grandmother in 1930. Yeah, so yeah, so when we talk about Hawaii, you know, to that generation, if there are still you know still some around, which there are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to them, it, they saw it coming to be in a state, right? So that annexation made selling agricultural products to the mainland much more profitable. They were to push the territory of Hawaii, bring more white Americans to Hawaii. Oh, my God. And then the homesteads were offered. Think about it. Like, now it is there's a lot of politics going on here, John. Let's just do oh, a ton. A lot of politics. Are I mean, going everything's on. playing into the white plantation owner. Again, mostly American natives or parents, you know, lineage back to America. So this is all playing great into their hand. They're oh. annexed. I mean, they want to turn Hawaii more American. So what do of you course. Do? Listen, anybody who comes to America or we see, we want to Americanize them. Naturalize and all Uh, that. Immediately, right? Well, it's funny is that's a whole nother episode. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, then you got, you know, Alfred Eames came to Oahu in 1898 
to grow pineapples and formed Del Monte Fresh Produce Company, named after Monterey's California's Hotel Del Monte, who was a customer of premium produce and coffees from Hawaii. And in 1899, cousin of President Sanford Dole arrives on Oahu with aspirations of making fortunes in growing the agricultural industry. So that's what, so, you know, again, a lot of amazing things that are happening. And listen, I'm an entrepreneur. I love to see entrepreneurs going outside of their normal territory and trying to make it happen. But there's also a lot more to the story with Hawaii, right? We have two growers here in Florida. You have Noble Citrus and Wish Farms. Both of them working to go to California with their clientele, customers, fruit. So that pine berry, which you've seen, right? The white berry, they're trying to grow it over in California now. Some of those tangerines, same thing. They're growing them in greenhouses to see how it will survive in that climate and that culture, right? So a lot of this even still happens to this day with growers. I don't think our growers today would say, we've got the aspirations of becoming millionaires by doing Right. Yeah. So, extract resources from foreign country. Exactly. So that's... let's look at this. The son of Sanford's cousin, Charles James Drummond Dole, was heavily influenced by Sanford and went to Hawaii in 1899. Mm-hmm. James Dole studied horticulture and agriculture at Harvard and took advantage of the power his kinsmen yielded. Ooh. So focused on coffee first, the land was better suited for pineapples. Now, when James Dole arrived on the island of Oahu in 1899, With dreams making fortunes in the emerging fruit business, he did so in the wake of destruction of the Hawaiian monarchy. The massive depopulation of the native Hawaiians and the tradition of Western industries extracting profit from Hawaiian soil and people. Dole purchased 64 acres on Oahu and planted 75,000 pineapples with the help of his cousin, Sanford Dole. It must be nice to have the president of this new territory being your uncle. Right? You got to get a good foot in. I think that that's one of the things that, you know, people don't realize. I mean, having a little bit of a generational, I would say, not capital. just <laughs> yeah, wealth. <laughs> I was going to say generational wealth. Social capital, financial Definitely. capital. Yeah. And then having the name of Dole might be a little, I would say, proceeding to the name of who's the president. Dole. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. So you got to look at this as early as 1820, Christian missionaries wrote about pineapples growing in the wild and on small plots of land around the Hawaiian islands. Pineapples were imported into the U.S. from the Caribbean until a group of California businessmen began growing pineapples on Hawaii, joining forces with James Dole. From there, the Dole Fruit Industry was born. Not the Dole Fruit Company. No. Like I say, the Dole Fruit Industry was born, right? And that's what's so uh, interesting about that. And then in 1902, Dole opens the first pineapple cannery, calls it the Hawaiian Pineapple Cannery, also known as Hapco. And by the mid-1920s, Hapco and the largest cannery is the largest cannery in the world. A lot of things were, were happening. You know, I've got this book, you know, that I definitely want to throw out there. It's called The Pineapple, Botany, Production, and Uses. It was actually written and edited by Dr. Bartholomew and Dr. Paul. Now, when I went to Hawaii for the first time, I got to sit and have lunch with Dr. Bartholomew and Dr. Paul, who were on, you know, research boards for, for many years. And it was, I'm going to read this, you know, uh, out of the book. 
Prior to the discovery of the pineapple fruit by Cristobal Colón, also known as Christopher Columbus, on November 4th, 1493, the fruit was already a stable component of the vegetative crop complex and in the diet of Native Americans in the lowland tropics all the way through 1929. I mean, this book goes over many aspects of even how, when, the development of the pineapple trade happened. It even has pineapple production by harvest, by country, all the way to this day, and even talks about, again, how much plantations were in the, in the again, 1800s, all the way through coming to byproducts like we just talked about with the cannery, and then even moving into today's production and the anatomy, what, how they grew pineapples, why they grew pineapples, right? So you think about that. I mean, there's a lot to do with the pineapple, especially even going back to the 1400s. So by 1907, Dole gathered together all the Hawaiian pineapple growers and devised the first successful nationwide ad campaign on the mainland to make consumers aware of pineapples. I like how you called it the ad campaign out there, everyone. This was the monopoly. This That's is how they started the monopoly, okay? And it was to create awareness of pineapples. Now, prior to this, Dole and other canners had not developed their own brands. Most of their output was sold with wholesalers, branded labels, and so forth. Just like you see today. We've got a lot of different labels, some big brands, some grower labels. So James Dole believed that the success of the business and industry depended upon product visibility. And the marketing pineapple, marketing that pineapple required the commodification of Hawaiian culture. I don't like that, but I get it. Yeah. Now, this includes marketing native values and practices and the, what is this, the ahole terms? Is that what you say on that one? So that is the talents in Hawaiian terms or the hula and the aloha, generosity of love, our people, the UI or youthful beauty of men and women and the continuing allure of lands and water. I mean, that that's, that's pretty, I would say, advantageous. I, I buy it. Cultural appropriation, but you know, hundred <laughs> percent. But I mean, there's also fruit that, like, that's what I tell someone. We, you know, I was on KMPH in 2014. It was a Fox's sister show in Fresno, and I just remember when they, you know, the guy was like the host. He goes, you know, I went to Haiti, and they said we're going to visit a pineapple farm. And I was looking up, you know, on the trees, you know, you know, where do I actually pick this pineapple from? They, some people have no idea that pineapples are not grown in the continental U.S. Yeah. Pineapples are grown in Central America, Mexico. Yes, Hawaii, but really, it's really, more yeah. of a tourist We're, we're going to get to that, yeah. Right? And we're going <laughs> to get to that too. But a lot of the production is not done in the United States oh. at all. And, and it's because people, of labor. And some people will tell you, oh, no, it's, I think it's grown in Texas, right? And you're like, oh, gosh, we're so wrong. But <laughs> even to that nature, right, John? Yeah. No, I mean, it, we're, we're going to find exactly why that is. I mean, so like you just said, I mean, the selling of the pineapple was really positioned to be something distinctly Hawaii, which as evidence that you just described, people, I think a lot of people still associate pineapple with Hawaii. And they painted this picture that the pineapple came from these paradise lands with ocean breezes and scent of paradise and all these things. And that was a key component of marketing these pineapples and creating the demand that might have not existed to that level yet. Now, Moving into 1910, Dole, well, Sanford Dole. So the, again, at this point, the governor, because it's it's part, it's an annexed territory, 
of the U.S. He wrote to James Dole, and he wrote this, quote, The more I think about it, the less I like the proposition of using the Dole name for your enterprise. It is a name which has long been associated in these islands with religious, educational, and philanthropic enterprises. I think it would be regrettable to give the name Dole an association of such a commercial character that would adhere it if made a trademark or part of the business name of a corporation. So, in short, Sanford said, don't use our name for the brand because in don't my mind, do it. my name is a beautiful thing with religious give back and educational give back. And so, you know, everyone always thinks very highly of themselves. And so James acquiesced to that. He said, all right, you know, we'll not use the Dole name. We won't exploit the Dole name in any of the labels and advertising. But that ends up changing further down the road, which again, we'll get into. So early Ads from the Hawaiian Pineapple Company in the 1910s and 20s featured, again, images of the fruit itself, emphasizing ripeness and exotic and otherworldly flavors, emphasized the domesticity with scenes of mothers and children at the table. Again, they're creating this image of this taste of paradise, but that is also easy and enjoyable with the family. So again, it's really not all that different from today's strategy when it comes to marketing. Now, this was pretty darn successful, actually. The demand for canned pineapples, and the reason, again, it was canned pineapples because that traveled better in terms of freshness and guarantee of not having issues on arrival. So cans pineapples were really the majority of the product going to the US. And with this increased demand, there was a desire for more land because that's a natural step, right? If if or if you have a lot of demand for something, the next step is like, okay, how do I expand and grow? So Dole had managed to convince his network in Hawaiian Boston to arrange for a sizable capital investment in which he used to purchase not just the land of but the whole island of Lanai and developed it into a vast pineapple plantation. It actually became the largest plantation in the world with over 20,000 acres devoted exclusively to growing pineapple. Talk about a monocrop. So at the time, Lanai produced actually over 75% of the world's pineapple crop. So this one island alone was producing 75% of the world's pineapple crop and dominated the market. And so appropriately, this island actually ended up earning the nickname of Pineapple Island. And if that wasn't enough, Dole also purchased land, not the whole island, but this time just land on the island of Maui. And what made Dole and his operation so successful? Because if you recall from part two in our series, we we talked about a a British gentleman by the name of Kidwell who had really started toying with pineapples and opened the cannery business and it wasn't successful. Of course, there were tariffs in place, but the labor was very expensive. And what Dole was able to implement was the use of these large mechanized systems that allowed him to import, well, basically cut these pineapples far more efficiently without the use of a lot of labor. And he was also importing a huge number of foreign workers who were paid at the end of the day at basically indentured servitude levels. So borderline I want. I don't want to call it slavery, but it wasn't something. You know, you walk up to one of these workers, and they're not going to say that they love what they're doing and where they're working. So Dole essentially managed to reduce the price of pineapples to such a level that it just drove every other producer out of the business, which really didn't fall in line with the scheme he was building. But 
something unfortunate happens in the 1930s, right, Patrick? Which is going to, I think, take over a little bit, right? What do you know that happened in the 1930s? All right, I'm going to say it. The Great Depression, right? That's one thing. I think that's the most enthusiastic way I've ever heard the Great Depression announced. Why do you want me to say it? Uh, I would say it's the Great Depression. The Great Depression. (laughs) The Great Depression. I'm like, the Great Depression, right? Because... You know, it's crazy as you say this, though, too. You know, when bad things happen, right? And we even experience this in COVID. We've experienced this in war, right? War comes peace, right? With death comes life, right? And and so I always say, like, even the depression, you know, it's called that for a reason. And this is my own opinion on it. But, like, depression, right, is almost like an emotion, like being happy, Right. Think about it. So we are depressed means that obviously it's at a low point in, in life, right? There's only one way to go, which is completely down, right? But I think the depression's at its lowest or it's on the verge to innovation, expansion. So, the, you know, obviously the Great Depression was in the 1930s, resulting in a decrease in demand, right? I mean, that's really what's happening. And the companies, obviously, every, every company's losing money during this time. So mm-hmm. now the company became financially overexposed between 1931 and 32, production of canned pineapple on the Hawaiian Pineapple Company fell by over 80%. By December 1932, Dole was removed from management of the company and the assets of the failed company were transferred to a new company in which Castle and Cook owned over 50% of shares. And look at that. Talk about going full circle. Castle and Cook was a very old company in Hawaii that was in, surprise, surprise, sugar. So you have this sugar plantation, which is still quite powerful on these islands that absorbs this Hawaiian pineapple company, which Dole has now been kicked out. And what's amazing is Dole did really, yeah, there, I mean, we're not going to go into the details of it, but yeah, there were some decisions in hindsight that might have not been good. But overall, he did a pretty amazing job for developing this business again. You know, the Hawaiian, the native Hawaiians will argue otherwise, of course. We're not, we're only delivering the facts of history here. We're not taking positions, but Dole has now been removed from this company because of the unfortunate events of the Great Depression. Yeah, I think this is actually a great place to uh, take a break. Uh, Mr. Dole being let go. And uh, when we return, we'll find out what happens next with Dole's pineapple company and what that means for Hawaii. So we'll be right back. JGLC, the place to be, a third-generation, family-owned and operated asset-based company. Throughout their 60 years in business, integrity, reliability, and loyalty to their customers has remained their top priority. JGLC guarantees 24-7 communication with your personal logistics coordinator. They offer competitive pricing without sacrificing services. They operate throughout the United States and Canada. JGLC's customers count on them for dependability and dedication carried out on every order, every time. 60 years of service for all your trucking needs. Visit them at JGLC.com for your custom quote. Welcome back, everyone. We are on our fourth part of our series of the history of Hawaii, everyone, and and what that entails, right? From sugarcane to pineapples, John and I are talking about it all. Now, before the break, we led up to, obviously, James Dole officially dismissed from the company, right? 
you're fired, done. And then us leading into the Great Depression, right? So let's talk about it. Let's get right into it. You know, by the 1930s, you know, Native Hawaiian people were depicted not only as harvesters of the product, but as part of the product itself. And we, we do see that in many cultures, depending on Obviously, the land, dependent on that culture, dependent on the geographic location, we've seen this, right? So their bodies used to lend as a certain authenticity of the fruit. One advertiser declared that Dole Pineapple is truly Hawaiian, okay? So depicting that muscular and shirtless native Hawaiian man kneeling and holding a pineapple. So, oh no, I, I can just see it now. Dwayne Johnson's got his next, his next commercial already lined out for him. And... So behind him, a native woman sits with flowers in her hair and a bowl of pineapples in her lap, pretty much showing the relevance of men and women in Hawaii for pineapple. That's what's even greater about that, right? So the caption tells the reader to grab pleasure in full measure and declare that Dole's pineapple's juice is pure, unsweetened, and all natural. Hey, I mean, listen, it, good good commercials just leading up to it, right? I mean, you can't you can't say that that wasn't a good idea. I mean, the time period where they were in, yeah. I mean, how else to show people this exotic fruit but by showing them the people, the land, right? And what comes with it. So re- really interesting there. And in 1937, roughly 25% of the population lived in plantation settlements, okay? And 46 sugar and pineapple plantations Intensely monocrop close to 300,000 acres across the islands, John. Think about that. That's insane. That, like, so all of the people were living throughout these plantations. That's 300,000 acres. I mean, look at Hawaii as geographical location. That 300,000 acres is almost all the land, if you think about it. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's, it, it's a lot of land. So dual advertisements not only reinforce stereotypes of racial inferiority by ex- exotizing and often sexualizing Hawaiian people. They also appropriate Hawaiian traditions for white amusement and consumption. At the time these images of paradise were painted, native Hawaiians were being pushed from the land the pineapple came from. So again, as I say, like I understand it during its time, right? There's all everything during time. We always see some of those old produce labels where they have pinup girls, right? Yep. And a lot of times we have those because we who was coming back Right, we were having what happened, John. We were having people coming back from war. We mm-hmm. were having a lot of like sailors, armies, marines that were coming back, especially in the 1930s. Which next happens the baby boom, right? Which is hence why one generation is called the baby boomers, right? So I get it. Now the operation of the pineapple industry required demanding physical labor, frequently performed by women. Okay, and that labor was intense. I mean. I was reading during this research, I mean, they would be handling this stuff by hand. And if anyone has had pineapple juice or much pineapple, more than just a few, there's a, a chemical, not a like a synthetic chemical, but just a natural occurring chemical in pineapple that's very acidic. And it, it actually eats your skin. It's like super painful and acidic. I mean, I know when my kids eat too much pineapple, their mouths start to burn. So these are people peeling these pineapples and preparing them for canneries with their bare hands all day long. And their hands are just literally being, and again, when I say literally, I mean literally being eaten away. Yeah, no, 100%. Now they wear gloves and a lot of other things they use for that. But even to right. this day, I mean, you still see a lot of women in the field, right? You still mm-hmm. see a lot, even in the packing house, you still see a lot of women. So, you know, again, literally the whole operations were performed by, by women. So these workers often lived in company housing too, modeled after sugar plantation communities where they were subject to sometimes heavy 
handed paternalistic supervision, right? You know, pretty much by the iron claw, you know, right? There's, there's nothing you can do. They know everything that's going on. You know, you're pretty much, I hate to say it, a slave to the plantation, right? You know, and that's just like the old coal mines, right? Remember, yeah. they'd pay you by the coal miner uh, store money. So you never really received money outside of the store money, right? So you would never yeah. really be able to leave the community because if well, you did, you still didn't have any money to buy anything. It's like the, and again, this is going several episodes back from last year, bananas. Remember when we talked about the bananas? This is almost identical to the system that was used in the South American plantations for bananas, that whole plantation housing structure that honestly existed in very heavily up until the beginning of this century and, I th and obviously still continues to some degree today. It's not something that was new, but nonetheless, terrible conditions, which again, befell mainly the native Hawaiians and then immigrants that were kind of coerced to labor there from Asia. Why don't you talk about that? What is the next implementation that they did, right? I mean, everybody's going to know this once you say it. Well, of course. And this, again, is also similar to, I think, struggles today within our industry, within certain production areas of the world. So modern chemicals, of course, come in because what do modern chemicals do? They help essentially, or they're supposed to help with yield. And so these chemicals started to get used particularly pesticides and herbicides, of course, and actually had an adverse effects on these workers. So some were treated, these pesticides and herbicides were actually used on plants that developed longer stocks, which made harvesting the fruit and the plants even more laborious if it wasn't difficult enough. And on top of that, just the general exposure to these chemicals was hazardous to both the laborers and the community where this stuff was being spread. And remember, you're talking about 300,000 acres. So there's inevitably communities in these areas uh, where these activities are occurring. Um, now we move into the 1940s, which is obviously the first half is quite involved with the World War II uh, scenario. We're not going to talk about World War II in Hawaii. That's uh, There's plenty of historical uh, documentaries and information out there about Hawaii in World War II, and nothing too exciting happened in the world of produce, I think, at that point per se. However, after World War II, the pineapple industry actually began to shift. Okay, so it started to move away from Hawaii to places like the Philippines and Thailand. And as such, Hawaii lost its market superiority. And the main reason for that was labor, 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 labor costs. So these countries I just listed, Philippines and Thailand, much cheaper labor. That's what had Hawaii's advantage to begin with when we were talking about James Dole when he established the company in the early 20th century. But now those labor I'm not saying that's a good thing, obviously. If there's cheap labor, that means conditions are probably even worse. But that's what happens. And then moving on to between 1950 and 1960, the actual growth rate of Hawaiian pineapple industry stagnated. So what had been growing steadily is now stagnating about 1%, 1 to 2%, while the growth rate now starts to see an increase. To wise prior to this, you, know, you had visitors, but it's really after World War II in the 50s and 60s where there's more stability in the world, greater economic growth overall, you have tourism increasing. That increases to about 18% in that period of time. Like I was saying, so after the war, number of plantations are falling, not only due to labor costs, but consolidation. There's increasing competition. And so prime agricultural lands, primarily around Honolulu, are starting to get consumed by this rapid, uncontrolled urbanization and tourism development and the construction of military bases. And concern of these impacts actually led Hawaii to adopt 
the nation's first statewide law regulating land use in 1961. That's a whole other discussion. Also, how successful that was. I think we can all look at the state of Hawaii today and decide that. But in 1989, just two years before the closure of the last dull cannery in Honolulu, the plantation opened its doors to the public as the Hawaii's complete pineapple experience. So again, that's going in tune with the growing tourism. So they're trying to capture business where they can, and they, pineapples is decreasing. They're going to look at tourism, and what better way to take an existing pineapple plantation and convert it into a tourism experience? And so today, this plantation is actually the second most visited attraction on Oahu, and the experience makes only passing references on the informational placards to the difficult work of the people that were harvesting these pineapples and pretty much no reference to the displacement of the native Hawaiians. You can see that again, there's there's still an image being painted about or a narrative being dictated by those that establish these pineapple plantations on the island and how they're still trying to monetize the culture and the uh, peoples of Hawaii. That's amazing. As crazy as it sounds, right? Like that is truly amazing. You know, and it's, you know, some other, you know, I would say some other like fun facts, you know, and we've talked about it, right? If you go on Google and you type in like fun facts about, you know, Hawaii, right? You know, this is where Captain James Cook met his unfortunate end. That is one of a fact, right? And we talked about yep. Cook in the earlys, right? Yep. Uh, a couple other fun, fun facts about Hawaii. It's the most isolated island chain on the earth, okay? Its unique language is compromised of a 12-letter alphabet, mm-hmm. okay? It's plastic-free, so if you go on, there's no plastic items on, on the island. And it's the home of a 70-mile-wide volcano, John. Yep. I mean, there's more going on than you know, everyone. And and that even leads to, now we're, we're kicking it up, you know, from 1950 now to 1989, and now moving into, that's right, the new millennium, which is the 2000s, right, John? Yeah, yeah. And that's where, that's where we get into 2007, where the last pineapple cannery in Hawaii, that was on Maui, it ended up closing. Now, why did it close, John? It closed because they weren't selling enough? No, it's that same labor cost, right? Too expensive. Hey, things that are happening today have happened in history about repeating our history all the time, right? I mean, look at labor costs today going completely sky high through the roof. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a similar challenges, different time, different place, but similar problems that tend yeah. to be in alternate forms. I agree. Now, the corn seed industry is the state's dominant ag land user, right? And did you know that it's crazy as this sounds, there's over 7,000 growers in Hawaii growing different items, okay? And mm-hmm. did you know, too, we, have, we talked about it earlier, that potatoes were a big part yes, of, of Hawaiian's right. culture as well. Sweet potatoes. Yeah. Yep. And I was going to say it, over 250 types of sweet potatoes they would incorporate in their meal. Obviously, commercial uh, forestry, macadamia nuts, nuts were another big item as well. But none of those products, not even when combined, come anywhere close to fill in the economic void created by the loss of sugar and pineapple. How crazy is that? No one wants to just eat nuts all day. Like, no, like, no, I'm just sorry. Like, as, as funny as that sounds, like, you know, they'd rather have, I mean, again, I, I went hiking in the Dominican Republic, John, you know, I do it every year. And what do you think they serve? One of the stops. Nuts. Fresh pineapple. They cut it up right there on the trail and they're giving, you know, 
fresh pineapple. I mean, and it's like one of the best things ever because you're parched, right? You've already been eating That's nuts true. and grain all all day hiking the mountain. You get to one of your stops and they're cutting fresh pineapple and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the Don't best Don't eat too much of it. Ever, right? No, your mouth will go you on can't. fire. You can't. So, <laughs> you know, so listen, so some swaths of farmland have been sold off now and develop into commercial real estate, right? Inspiring fears that Hawaiians agrarian past could one day be lost and a more, I would say, citified future is now here. So Hawaii spends as much as $3 billion a year to import 90% of its food, which is why I remember going there in 2012, I said, 13, yeah. a gallon of milk was almost $8, $9. I can't imagine what it is now. And with all the inflation costs with everything, heck, I went to Wawa the other day and my son wanted a bag of, of chips and I'm okay with that, right? It was $7 for a small bag of chips. And I'm sitting there going, listen, the bananas were, were two for a dollar, right? Which again, 50 cents a piece, right? Versus mm -hmm. a bag of chips was literally $7 plus tax. So definitely a lot has happened. And we're starting to see a lot of high prices, right? Everything that's happened in this nation, right? Has gone up, 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 up right? Yeah. And it's crazy because with that point of what's I mean, 90% of food, I mean, if we, our listeners can just imagine that for a second, wherever you live, whether it's in the States or abroad, just think about what life would be like. You're just having that in the back of the, your mind that 90% of the food that you're eating is coming from somewhere else. It's, it's mind boggling. And with that, I mean, the fact that this island chain, this Hawaiian island chain, was once completely self-sufficient just before the Western peoples arrived in the 1700s. You know, these natives thrived on 2,500 miles from the nearest continent. Okay, so like you were saying, completely remote. Completely. And they were using sustainable farming and fishing methods and could be self-sustaining. And with that said, for for all the doom and gloom that were we're painting here with the possibility of agrarian culture being lost and this diverse food landscape being lost. There are many that still believe that resurgence of agriculture is possible, of course. I like that doom and gloom. We should have an episode called doom, doom and, gloom. and gloom, the rise and fall of certain produce items. Ooh, that could be a fun one. That could be it because there's a lot that we've got we've been discontinued or should be discontinued. Don't get me started. Ooh, on, I like that one. Don't um, get me started on. I tell everybody this as much as I love apples, that red delicious apple. It's to the point now, like I, my kid sees a red delicious. He's like, why did you buy that? Like, so we won't get into the doom and gloom, but no, uh, yeah. We'll save that for another time. We're going to save that. Doom and gloom, the rise and fall of produce brands and items. Oh, get ready for a new episode. But yes, turning our backs to doom and gloom. So obviously, like we said, you know, tourism is the is the growing source of economic resource for the Hawaiian islands today. And while that has plugged the void of the revenues produced once by sugar and pineapple. Tourism, of course, is a completely different animal and has actually led to a lot of environmental destruction and displacement of native Hawaiians. Because as these buildings go up, you know, land costs go up, which means taxes go up, or people or these real estate companies simply buy out and push out these people from the home. So you have a lot of native Hawaiians that are being forced out of these neighborhoods and losing their ancestral homes. And again, the, the major tourism push here, and we see it 
in other parts of the world, it's, it's growing. You have these plantation, agricultural tourism that continues to grow, and especially on Hawaii. And it's really just the latest iteration of the anguish that has plagued them for over two centuries since the European explorers. I mean, you've, you've just had this constant forced evolution by these Westerners that came upon these islands. You know, first it was obviously cultural pushes, you know, with the missionaries and Christianity. Then you had the whaling industry that came in that further pushed certain food culture changes and agricultural changes to what they would grow. And then, of course, that just spiraled into a an event where those two things married between the missionaries and these agricultural changes that ended up lining the pockets of these missionaries and their descendants, which, of course, then promoted power and friction between the natives. And the story has been told through our four parts here, but it's a sad story of what has happened to these islands. It's hard to, you know, people will tend to ask a lot, I think, in historical stories like this, something like, was this inevitable? Could this have been avoided? From my perspective, and generally what I say for historical events like these or any historical event is mostly not. Is it inevitable? No. I mean, things always can change and have ended up different. But I think in the case of Hawaii, there's always going to be a moment where Westerners were going to encounter these islands. Some sort of impact was going to happen. There's always going to be a friction between the cultures and lifestyles of these two extremely different peoples with extremely different values and technologies would have gone exactly the same way in another world. I don't know, but I'm hesitant to say that something like this would not have encountered at some point with the Hawaiian Islands. I think it's crazy, man. Just like I said, all all of the above, it, you know, just thinking about what, obviously not even Hawaii, but the people had to yeah. deal with, right? Yeah. It's almost like, again, I, I don't hate saying this, but it's like, it's almost like the Native Americans here. It's like they were almost robbed of their land, yeah. Yeah. right? And not, you're right, not even almost. They were robbed. They of were, yeah. Land. And it's still something that's being taught. I mean, like you say, with the indigenous peoples of the continental U.S., which I think continue to this day trying to petition to the U.S. government for their lands back. The same thing is still happening in Hawaii. I was just reading, again, during our research, an article not too long ago with Hawaiians and a committee still trying to petition the U.S. government for the return of their lands. And so I think it's, I don't think that's ever going to go away. And honestly, if I were in their position, I would probably uh, have similar feelings. But it's tough. It's a, it's a tough, it's always a very tough debate to be involved in. It's like uh, a lot of things like with slavery, you know, you have both sides arguing, you know, for remuneration, the descendants of the slave people in Americas, and then should the descendants of the white people be paying for them? I mean, it's, it's a very tough conversation, a very tough debate, but there is no doubt that the people that have been on the wrong end of this experience over the course of 300 plus years, there's a lot of pain and suffering there. I, I agree. We learned a lot of the last, you know, four episodes, everyone. I believe you've learned a lot. We've all learned a lot. And, and that's just one thing that I can tell you is that don't discount history. Understand that, you know, fresh produce is a huge part of our history and agriculture is ingrained always in our history. You know, I told that to someone uh, the other day, as we always talk about, you know, little fun things when it comes in to an election year and everybody wants to always, you know, throw battles on who and what party you should be involved in. 
listen, I'm not telling you what to do. And I know there's a lot out there now, John, that they're saying farmers are killing the earth, right? You've heard this, I've heard this, but everyone, food is a good thing, okay? And growing your food naturally, even, you know, like I said, organic, even with pesticides on it, right? We're trying to get bugs to not be in your food. As I always tell people, my wife was with me driving down the road the other day. She pointed at the orange grove and goes, is that that bug that's killing Florida citrus? And I said, do you know what it's called? And she goes, no. And I said, it's called the Asian citrus psyllid. It used to be called Hong Long Bing. And now they just call it the psyllid, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, the, the, like, right? The swamp thing, the blob, right? They're like, now they've classified as the psyllid. But there are things that we need to make sure that our crops do not get killed. So obviously spraying pesticides, you know, spraying some of these things to make sure that the crop happens, right? We're not injecting proteins into it like we know in some of the other uh, industries. We do let the soil um, lay for one to two years. We put new crops in, you know, so again, you know, think about all the changes and how the history of fresh produce has really, really affected lives of people, cultures, and the way we even see pineapples today. Well, on that beautiful note, very well done closing to our series, this epic four-part series on the stolen lands of Hawaii. We again encourage you before we go to subscribe to our newsletter and to keep in tune with extra stories that we share with all of you related to our episodes. Stay tuned for our future episodes that are going to be coming up. They're going to be a lot of exciting ones. So again, do stay tuned. And until next time, it's goodbye for me, John Pep. Goodbye, everyone. Or as they say in Hawaii, aloha.